Well, here we are at week seven. And the title of this week is Humanity. Now, I don't know when you, when you kind of opened your book and found out that was the title. I'm not sure what kind of reaction you might have had. Maybe you thought, oh, humanity, ah, oh, it sounds like one of those required college courses, right? And it feels a little boring. Oh, we're going to talk about humanity somehow. But I, I, I assure you that as we enter into this particular discussion, that we're coming to probably, in some, coming in some ways to a pivotal point in the discussions that we're making. Because when we are willing to be open to the whole idea of humanity, then what we discover is, it's talking about me. It's talking about my approaches to the world. And it starts to become very, very personal as we, as we dive into this. So, so there's those four questions. You, you answered them, or some of you got to answer those. Let me give them to you very quickly again. Number one, each person possesses a sinful nature and needs God's forgiveness. Foundational, okay? Two, we're created in the image of God and therefore have equal value regardless of race, religion, or gender, or how I think about my neighbor. It, it, it all fits in there. We've got to get this notion of being created in the image of God. Not just those of us who sit comfortably in this space. We need to understand that when God breathed life at conception and before... Those, that, that, that young one, those ones that came out of their mother's womb, everyone without exception is created in the image of God. It's broken, but created in the image of God. Third, all people are loved by God, therefore I too should love them. There's one we'll work with a bit. And four, the Holy Spirit is God and dwells in Christians to empower them to live the Christian life. We can't talk about living the, 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 uh, uh, the Christian life until we come face to face with this reality that it's an empowered lifestyle. It's not about change alone, and I'll mention this later. It's about transformation, and that's outside of my hands. All right? So this morning's goal is to see ourselves as God sees us, whether it be as the followers of Jesus or whether it be as non-followers of Jesus. And I'll point out that it is often very different than the way we in our humanity all too often see others in God. Let's work with this. If I was to give a title, or I did give a title to this, <coughs> excuse me, this message, I'm calling it Seeing Us as God Sees Us. God's eyes versus my eyes. And when I use the word us, I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about us, the world, this, this, uh, this planet filled with humanity. And we want to look at how God sees uh, through um, his eyes at this. So here's our starting point. God has this amazing design and purpose for all people. That means all people. God didn't waste his time breathing into the life of someone and then say, I have no purpose for that. When God creates, there's a design and there's a purpose and we need to acknowledge that or see that. But it is admittedly a journey getting from my vision to God's vision. Because I prayed a prayer at some point, for me, I was a little fella, got it renewed at 17, and then kept on renewing it, I think, at times, because I was a Methodist, I had to do that. And um, so we, we, we went through this, but realizing that wherever our denominational lines cross or don't cross, the truth is we are on a journey, moving closer and closer and closer into this wonderful reality of becoming like Jesus. 
There it is. I'm 71. I still read the same book called the Bible. And I want you to know that there's still wonderful nuggets that pop out of those scriptures that remind me I'm on a journey. I was reading just the other day where Paul says, we look through a glass dimly, smoky glass, but then face to face, when we come to him, we are going to see a reality that will blow our minds. He is so big, so amazing, that all our craftiness and our study and our academics are not going to bring us to the very edge of who God is. He's, he's too big. Love him. But to resolve this challenge, it seems somewhat counterintuitive, at least the way our own humanity is designed in our brokenness. And, and for this morning, it is simply meaning that we see greatness and effectiveness solely by gaining positions of advantage, climbing the proverbial ladder. That's how we define success. Um, There's something that feels really good when I can go home and tell my wife I got the promotion. Or it feels really lousy when I come home and I tell my wife that other guy got the promotion. Because somehow there's there's an incredible amount of our identity is defined by where we are on this social ladder. Uh, and, 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 And by that we define how good we are doing. We're going to look at something that's kind of the flip opposite of that this morning. After all, it was, but, that, but that, former, that former reality was ingrained in us when we were kids. Re- remember those times when we would find some point of elevation? It might have been a chair on the neighbor's porch, or, or we'd build a snow mound and we stood on top of it. And then we had this little sing-songy thing that said what? The castle and what? You're the dirty rascal. It got defined in us somehow, consciously or subconsciously. If we got to the top, there was something that said or defined who I am that may cause me to look a little lower at the guy down there, the dirty rascal types, right? And when we get that notion of humanity instilled in our minds, it's going to alter the way that God has intended us to live and to minister in our world. It really becomes a strong roadblock in, uh, in our mission. But it is the most preve- uh, prevalent perception belief within our Western world as it all too often defines success. The idea that the higher we climb, we're the king of the castles. I'm at the top and you're not. Therefore, I'm in some way better than you. We should all say ouch to that. Because when we get close to Jesus we discover that's not something we can define. Not in those terms. That's, that's not the way he operates. Now let me cautious, be cautious here, though. I'm not condemning one's commitment, doing one's best in their given fields. I'm not talking about doing everything that you can in order to honor God, because that's what we're called to do in all of our efforts. And so this isn't about being lazy. This isn't about being ho-hum, que-sera-sera. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm just talking about a kind of focus that takes place, transpires in our very psyche when we get that one flipped upside down. So the warning lies in where we place our focus because the story about God's kingdom is a story about focus. It's learning to see life through the eyes of God Clearly, or as more clearly as we join the journey, seeing ourselves as God sees us. 
So let's go to Matthew 18. We're going, we're going to hang around the first 10 verses a bit this morning. And here's our first verse. Let's, let's jump into this. Verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, that's how Matthew remembers the incident. Mark gives us a slightly different picture and perhaps a tight, slight more, more honesty built into it. Because, it, well, here, here's Mark. Mark's account, chapter 9, verse 33, 34. Here's what he says. He writes, They came to Capernaum. He's talking about the disciples and Jesus. They've been on a journey. And when he was in the house, this house that was at their destination, he asked them this, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And all of a sudden, Jesus confronting them, eyeballing them with this question, causes them to blush, go silent, feel somewhat awkward. Because you see, they knew instinctively inside that that was not the discussion they should be having. They have been hanging around with Jesus for a while, remember. Now, you would think that, though, that that's a normal conversation amongst men who want to get to the top. I mean, there's a competitive nature amongst us men and, and, and women, too. But there's, there's that desire to wonder who's going to make it. And I've got these credentials, and you don't have those credentials. And, and I think I got a one-up on you because of. And, and they cite their reasons and their logic for being there. And the discussion becomes all about them. But the story of God's kingdom is about focus and motive. I think I've said that before. Whose eyes are you looking through? So Jesus throws a divine wrench into the works. Here's how he does it. Verse 2. He called the little child to him and placed the child among them. I think, that, I think those are strong words there. He didn't just sort of say, oh, you see that little kid over there? You remember that little child that just came running through the living room here or whatever? No, he takes that little child and he puts that child among them. Because there's going to be a very important lesson taught right now to these men. A very essentially important uh, lesson. Because we have to pay particular attention to Jesus' response here. Because in verse 3, this is what he says before he starts all this. He says, truly I tell you, or, or he could say, I tell you the truth. You see, something significant and of highest importance is going to come out of his mouth in this moment. He calls it truth. It doesn't get any higher than that. There's not truth and then more truth. There's not truth besides the truth. Truth is truth. And he's saying to you, okay, men, I need you to listen up right now. This is going to be an important message. This is not just a thought to be considered among other options. Jesus is going to address the cultural norm, which was the same then as it is now, the question of greatness, and it has everything to do with one's focus. As followers of Jesus, we cannot miss what he's going to say here, please. Why? Because it's the truth, and if there is one thing we know about truth, it sets us free. There's, there's God's design for us. He wants us to live in a, in a freedom that is defined by the language of the kingdom. He does not want us living in notions that are defined by the things of this world because he knows the things of this world will entrap us, they will ensnare us, there will be competitions that are not godly, there will be all kinds of things when we enter into the word greatness outside of kingdom language. This is going to be very important. 
Are we ready for this? I, I, I need to pause on this one because I, I'm asking not just you, I'm asking me, am I ready for this kind of answer? If, if, am I kind of a little tense? I'm not sure if I'm going to like this attitude. Is that, is that where my body language is going? What is it that Jesus is going to say in this moment? Are we ready? Because, friends, this statement brings us to the threshold of something that carries the weight of all eternity. This isn't just going to make you a happier man or woman in life. This isn't going to make you a little more successful and increase your bank account. This is going to put you on the threshold of eternity. This is kingdom life we're talking about. This is not optional life. This is what God dreamed in, in time previous. This is what God desired when he planted on the planet a man and a woman and, 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 and desired this amazing relationship with them. When, when God starts to open up the truth, this truth is going to be the most profound things that we get to listen to. Problem is, it just doesn't always fit comfortable with us because we've lived in a culture that doesn't define truth the way Jesus does or at least define ideas the way Jesus' truth does. This is not just an educational moment Jesus is tossing around. He's talking to the men who are going to be the voice of the church at its very conception, and they need to get this right. But the truth is, the focus hasn't changed. This morning, friends, he is talking to us, the very people who are the voice of the church that has endured for 2,000 years. The mission hasn't changed. The time period is the only thing that's altered in this story, the then and the now. When he is carrying these words and he says, truly, truly, I tell you, the truth is this. We have to sit and listen. This is critical for the success of the kingdom. And this is what he says. Got to get this right. Unless you change. (laughs) In order to embrace those three simple little words, unless you change. It's going to take more than a self-help book. It's going to take more than wandering through the woods trying to find myself. If we're going to embrace the notion of change, in a very serious way, we do it on our knees, where we allow the very Holy Spirit to begin to penetrate what we at this point have come to believe is our reality. We have become so comfortable in thinking about how we should do things that God is coming to us even in this moment and saying these simple words, unless you change, unless we change. See, the change is from a self-centered focus for greatness to a kingdom focus that is literally a 180-degree flip. This is going to feel incredibly counterintuitive. This is going to be something that on first hearing you're going to resist because it just does not make sense in the way that we have been formed throughout our years. You see, biblical change is a composition of three words. I wish that was just one big hyphenated word because they flow together. It's not this or this or this. This is really a flow. And the flow is this. Here's the three words, forgiveness, confession, and repentance. Why do I seek forgiveness? Because I've done something wrong. 
How do I know I've done something wrong? Because my very conscience tells me I've done something wrong. I am feeling uncomfortable. I do not like what's going on inside of me because I've offended you or I have offended him. And so I want to clear up this messy part of my world right now. So I finally build up the courage, knowing it's the right thing to do, but I finally build up my courage and I go to you and I say, I am sorry. Would you forgive me? Now, I want you to know there's a God in heaven that delights in those words. So I'm not minimizing anything here. He will forgive us. But if we stop at that point of this definition of change, we really kind of stop at a selfish point. Because now I've got my little world cleared up, but that's as far as perhaps it has gone. And so there's this next word that, that, that is thrown in here, and that's the word confession. Because confession takes us just a little bit deeper than forgiveness does. Confession is me acknowledging to God, or, 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 or agreeing with God, what he says about my sin. Or when I come to you. Um, I have gone to my wife on more than one occasion, and I have said, would you forgive me? And I want her to say what? Okay, so this is a new idea to me. I'll explain the idea afterwards. <laughs> he, I want her to say, sure, honey, I forgive you. But there are those times when she has the nerve to say, for what? Because you see, for her, she needs a clarification. What do you mean by saying uh, or asking for forgiveness? She wants me to say, because I have violated you. I have offended you. She wants to know that we're on the same page about this conversation that we're having. She wants to know that when I'm asking for forgiveness is what she thinks I'm asking for forgiveness for. That's confession. It's agreeing with the person whom we are seeking forgiveness for that we are in agreement on what we have done. Confession is a humbling point. Forgiveness is a self-releasing point. Confession is humbling. It takes me to the place where I have to acknowledge, outface boldly what I have done. God wants us to do that. God wants us to agree with what's going on because it's out of that moment that we can now begin to work with the problem. Our third word is repentance. Because you see, in the middle of all of this, in the process of this forgiveness to confession, the end result is I'm not going to be the same person I was when I walked into this. He desires something that, that will change who I am. And so the call here is for repentance. We're told that that, def, that word simply means an about face going this way. Now I want to go this way. I was hurting you by doing that. Now I want to go back here because that will please you or, or, or not offend you at least. And so we get into this idea of, of, of repentance. But we need to understand something I think very profound about this. Because repentance isn't about behavior modification. Repentance isn't the result of a New Year's resolution that lasts till about the middle of February. Because you see, when we attempt to do the change on our own, it has a really short shelf life. Good intentions carry us from here to here when God wants our repentance to carry us from here into eternity. And so how can that even be possible? Repentance, friends, is when I give God permission 
to allow his spirit to connect with my spirit to do something more than just agreeing that we're not doing things well. He wants transformation. The word change here isn't just about altering something. The word here is about totally transforming the way I look at life, the way I process life, the way that I have offended you. It's a different walk. It's a completely different walk. And we need God in the middle of that change. Otherwise, it doesn't work very well. Ah. So he called this little child up. And he points a finger at the disciples there. And he says, unless you become like one of these. That's the change. Become like little children. Because he says, if you're not willing to make and be, get serious about those little changes, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a, another sermon for another time. We simply know, though, God's, Jesus is very serious in this conversation. So the point isn't that Jesus just wants us to change. His goal is to bring us into the kingdom, to be with him forever, and in the process of the, that, giving us the ability to live, maintain a holy lifestyle. He wants to see something in us that's different than the way the world had molded us. You see, when Jesus looks at us through his eyes, his longing is to see the broken God image in us restored for the sake of eternity with him. But what's the change that enables this to happen? Childlikeness. It's an interesting metaphor, for it addresses the very heart of our humanity. Now, as we consider childlikeness, we acknowledge at least two interesting descriptive words that lead us to an ultimate third. Here's the two, three words, well, two, and then it'll lead us to the third. The first one is weakness. Here's why it becomes so counterintuitive, because we have said we've got to be strong, we've got to lift ourselves up, and then along comes Jesus, and he says, no, you've got to become weak. Well, here's how weakness gets defined scripturally. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul, speaking out of his weakness, wrote, his weakness he defined as a thorn in the flesh. He asked God three times to remove it, and God chose not to. But then God speaks this into Paul's life, and he says, but my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in, do you know the word? Weakness. It's a strange way, isn't it? A holy, a a completely upside-down approach to how we should manage life be safe and protect ourselves. He says, no, you need to be perfect in in, in weakness. And then, therefore, he says, Paul speaking now, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. For weakness to be transformed, it is not by pulling up our bootstraps. It's by engaging the very God who wants to be our strength in the middle of that weakness. We have to invite him into this. This is not a determination based upon our own grit. This is a willingness to be weak, to acknowledge that we can't, and then invite in the Holy Supreme Power to do it. Second word is dependence. The whole weakness thing starts to make sense here, I think. I was in grade three or four, somewhere there. Between my house and the candy store was Johnny Trailing. Johnny Trailing was absolutely the classic bully. And he had to have seen me as one he could take advantage of. I produced no fear in Johnny Trailing's life. And so when I would have to go from my house to get down to, to uh, the, the candy store, I had to pass his, his house. It was, it was fearful, literally. I, I, 
It took out the fun of going to the candy store. My mom probably liked that one, right? Yeah, that's, anyways, I'm, I'm off, and I'm hoping upon all hope that Johnny Trailing is not going to see me walk by his house. Sometimes it worked. Many times it didn't. And depending where I was on the approach to Johnny's house, it was either him coming out and me running back home, or it was him coming out because I'd passed his house a bit and running to the candy store. The problem with getting to the candy store is I knew I had to come back past Johnny Trailing's house. It was not fun, except for Sundays. Sundays was a wonderful day walking past his place because in those days we didn't have a car and so my dad and I walked to church past Johnny Trailing's house. I was hoping he would come out and stand on his porch because I would look at him. I would stare him down. I knew that I was completely safe, not because I, of who I was. I knew I was completely safe because I had a dependency upon this man beside me. I knew I could depend on him. I knew he'd be reliable. I knew he would take care of me. No questions asked. Friends, When Jesus said to the disciples, I want you to be childlike, he knew the journey that we were on. He knew the things that we were going to pass in life. He knew the ups and the downs, the scary things, the temptations, the failures, the absolute dismal failures. He he knew it all. And yet he walks by us. And his great delight is we take him by the hand and we walk through this stuff Because there's a promise and assurance that we know greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. You see, the change that comes about in our life is a transformative change that takes place when we hold hands with Jesus. It can only be that way if we want to succeed. Well... We come then in, in, in this passage of, of Matthew 18, we come to this story about the, about the, the good shepherd and, and the sheep that wander off and, and uh, leave the fold. This is an interesting account in Matthew. I didn't realize this until I was doing my study this week. Because this same story is told in Luke chapter, I think it's 19. Same story. Almost the same language all the way through it. But the context is completely different. In the Luke account, there is no doubt that the story of the Good Shepherd is the one that we saw in our children's storybooks. Jesus coming back, either carrying the little sheep in his arms or wrapped around his neck. We have all can perhaps picture that story. With the certainty that Jesus leaves the 90 and 9 and he goes after me. He cares. We sang about that this morning in that, in that wonderful song about him entering our shadows and our mountains and lies. He, he is willing to go after us. There's no question about it. And it creates an amazing model, though, for Matthew 18. Because Matthew 18, the lead role changes. In Matthew 18, you and I are the good shepherds. Never saw that before. The whole context of that particular passage leads us to see that it is now us who at the end of a hard day's work and after we've counted the sheep into the fold, we discover there's one missing. And then our head starts to play games with us. 
Because here's our challenge. If we were to get honest with ourselves at times, the battle starts inside of us at this point. It's so easy and tempting to sit in our comfortable, with our comfortable lives and, and get annoyed at those who rebel and who are weak and, and, and we question them and they say, what's, what's going on? And we get irritated with this whole thing. No, no, those who wander off for their own selfish purposes. But this passage clearly shows that if we're looking through the eyes of Jesus, then we clearly see our role as the shepherd. Friends, if there is a mission that is the result of this transformative life, where we are dependent in finding the strength of Jesus in our world, it is the joy of going after the annoying co-worker. Well, not going after them, you know what I mean. Being patient with them, loving them, caring about them, seeing it past the things that they do. It's, it's about the ability to go beyond the irritations that are created by that neighbor. You, 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 you put the person in your world, because they go on and on, don't they? I'm asking you to see that there are people in our world, whether they've been in the fold or whether they haven't yet embraced the fold, that are wandering out there. As a matter of fact, when you go out the doors here this morning, you look to the south, we've got a whole city full of them. We've got a world down there that so desperately needs the love and the example and the ministry of the good shepherd, whether that comes in the form of us or whether that's Jesus going out. It's really a combination, isn't it? But friends, we've got a mission we're on that is only made possible when we hear the words of Jesus that said, you've got to change. And the best word that I can give to us this morning is a humbling word because it won't come out of self-determination. It'll come out on our knees. It's when we can honestly face who we are and face the Heavenly Father and seek forgiveness and make confession and then repent. Oh, how he wants to show us what it means to truly see this world through his eyes. He longs for that. He died for that. He, he, he wants so much for something to happen in our world that is going to bring this world into the kingdom. He knows how to do that. And it's going to happen. I, I am convinced of it. Stories for another time. But folks, can we see that as our mission? Are, are, are we willing? Are we willing to make the necessary changes? Not just in our, in our day-to-day workable lives. I'm talking more about the changes that are required from in here. The attitudes we hold from those who aren't so lovely. And here's the reason we do this. Because of humanity. This boring word. Because the truth is this. We're all only human. There's no place for superiority. There's no place for it. I, I, I like the phrase, I question it sometimes, but I like the phrase that I'm just a sinner saved by grace. There's some meaning in that for me when I try to realize that there's nothing that I can hold on that makes me better than my next door neighbor. There isn't. We're, we're all on the same level. Now, if I'm only human and you're only human, that means that the person sitting next to you is only human. Look at them. 
and the person next to him or her. That, that means your annoying brown-nosing co-worker is only human and your meddling in-law and the jerk who cuts you off in traffic and the neighbor who gripes about every little thing, the politician from the other party, the cold-hearted terrorist. Well, we all have one thing in common. We're only human. That's how we are created. We also have one more important thing in common. God loves every single one of us, every single one of them. Not just the pretty ones, not just the educated, the wealthy or successful people, everyone. He loves them. God loves the bartender as much as the the barista. He loves the Middle Easterner as much as he does the Westerner. He loves the prostitute as much as the preacher. And how do I know? Because he said it so carefully in a verse that every one of us, I'm guessing, can probably quote here this morning. For God so loved the world. There's no selection in there. There's no dividing up of definitions of who that might be or not be. For God so loved the world that, listen, whosoever, I'm a whosoever, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but experience this wonderful, blessed gift of eternal life. And there's our mission. That's how come I know that I'm loved. That's how come I know that there is not a person that I'm going to encounter in my world today, tomorrow, for the rest of my life that is not loved. And for me to in some way cast, cast inappropriate thoughts and ideas and comments toward anybody in this world is in fact to demarcate the very image of God in that person. It might be broken, but it's in there. And his one desire is that he, through us, his church, would begin to help that person put the priestess back together again. It's our mission. It's an amazing one. Amazing one. You've all received, I hope you've all picked up one of these little communion packets. This is really our story here, friends. This, this is not a ritual that we'll just sort of do because it's that month, that Sunday of the month. It's a story that we are going to embrace, that we need to embrace. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, it wasn't just to remember an occasion, it was to remember a reality. The reality was that this Jesus was willing to hang on the cross, allow his body to be busted up for us, because he knew, or the scriptures teach us, the the, the word of God teaches us, that the wages of sin is The wages of sin is, say it, the wages of sin is death, friends. We had that thing sitting over our head from the day that we were born until the day that something changed in us, and that was our salvation through Jesus. When we take this little wafer and we place it in our mouth, we are acknowledging before God and everyone in this room that we had a death penalty on us that Jesus paid. He allowed his body to be broken to take that place on the cross for us. I'm asking you right now just to place that on your tongue. I want you to ponder that reality, not glibly, but I want you to give permission for the Holy Spirit to fill your heart with this living reality that I have been handed an amazing, an amazing gift.
And in that remembrance, or that final meal that Jesus had with his disciples, in which he was sort of explaining this, laying it out for them, it says he took the cup and he gave it to them all and he said, this is my blood. This is the new covenant. This is a brand new meaning. This is a whole new journey that I'm inviting you to take part in. This is a journey that is not going to be defined by anything more than the shedding of my blood because the shedding of my blood Or as the scripture said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I want you to know I'm not just dying to take your place. I want you to know that I'm setting you up for glory. I want you to know that in the shedding of this blood, I'm giving you a place in heaven. I want you to know that when you take this, when you take and receive this as a symbol and remembrance of my blood, that this isn't just something you're going to drink. This is going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, giving you the right to be called a child of God. That's what this is. And when you take it this morning, as we will in just a moment, I'm asking you not to drink this. I'm asking you to feel this. When it crosses your tongue... When it goes down your thing, gullet, thank you. I want you, to, I want you to sense something. This isn't being mystical and stupid. This is realizing that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins into what? This is a cleansing flow, friends. This is washing us clean. This is taking the lies and the filth of the world and replacing it with something that's going to last forever. And then as we drink it, we also have to feel the lostness of my world, our world. We have to feel that there is a need for that world out there to experience this cleansing. And we're the mouthpiece. We're the life. We're the ones that are going to make the difference in that place. So as we take this together, let it be more than a drink. Let it be something that draws you in to this living, eternal reality, the price that Jesus paid, his shed blood for us. And at the end of all of this, there's only one thing that we can say. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for this willingness to leave the very place of heaven, to set foot on this planet with all its stuff and its junk. We thank you for your willingness to take the cross so that we could enter into what you left. We thank you that you have given us a place in your very family that allows us to sit around your table and to eat and to fellowship with you. We thank you that you have, you have given us the privilege of, of a new name, and that you have given us the privilege of that name that calls me your son, your daughter. I'm in. We're in. But Father, we ask in this moment, we repent in this moment of our potential carelessness for not taking who we are and sharing it with the world you had never intended to just put this all into me. 
You never intended just for me to get it all and lock it up and enjoy the good life. You want us to be ambassadors for the greatest kingdom of all. Call us into it. For the sake of that broken body, for the sake of that blood that was shed for us, let us enter into our mission for the high calling of being called your children. Thank you. And the church said, Amen. Amen.